This is Podcast Maps, your guide to navigating the increasingly competitive podcast landscape. My name's Graham Brown. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Today, we're talking about Clubhouse. What does it mean for podcasting in general? Is it the end of podcasting? Is it competition to podcasting? So could it in some way be a gift to podcasting? I'm going to talk about all of that in the next 30 minutes. Got some data on Clubhouse as well, and hopefully a new way of looking at Clubhouse and understanding how it fits in. That's a map to really help you contextualize the landscape of audio. We're not just talking about the landscape of podcasting, but audio in general, and where do Clubhouse and podcasting and other forms of audio as well will have Fireside, which is the Mark Cuban app released later in this year. What does this all mean? How do these fit together? It seems that we are in an attention-starved world. So anything that grabs our attention by default takes away from something else. So does that mean that Clubhouse is eating into podcasting? It seems like it, and it certainly seems like it if you're paying attention to the social media channels where it's all Clubhouse at the moment. And you have Elon Musk on Clubhouse inviting Vladimir Putin to a chat, and everybody seems to be sipping the Clubhouse Kool-Aid a little bit. I think Clubhouse is great. And what I want to put to you today is really following on from episode 10 of Podcast Maps last time. I'm talking about the macro trend in podcasting today, which is this. It's getting easier to produce and harder to promote podcasts. So go and listen to episode 10 if you want the latest data on that and what the macro trend really is all about. And it's important to understand what's going on in podcasting now. And there's a shift There's certainly a shift since 2019, where a lot of people seem to be parked in terms of their understanding of success and successful strategies in podcasting. Yeah, obviously we're now on the other side of COVID. Things have changed. The Spotify and Apple algorithms have changed. Supply and demand has changed. Therefore, applying the strategies of 2019 in podcasting generally those strategies being of one type, which is get good guests, hustle guests, get your guests to share their episode to their networks, and then hopefully get some of those people who are fans of your guest onto your podcast and try and convert them into an audience. doesn't work. That worked in 2019, but it no longer works in 2021. And the reason is, is that supply and demand, go and listen to episode 10 of Podcast Maps and the algorithms. And I talk a lot about the Spotify and Apple algorithms changing. You can go and check out episode seven, which really goes in depth into the Spotify and Apple algorithms, how they work and why in some instances, getting your guests to share the podcast might actually be penalizing your podcast. I know it sounds surprising, but that's the reality. You see, look at the numbers and the business models. And if you understand how Apple and Spotify work, then you understand why guest sharing is probably not a good thing. And that is that these platforms rely on 
sticky, engaged audiences. They want you to come back. They want you to listen to one, two, three, four, five podcast episodes. What they don't want is you to bring in a lot of traffic and that flies by. It just goes straight through to the other side. Doesn't convert to another episode. Definitely don't want that. They want repeat listeners. So the the Spotify and Apple algorithm is increasingly geared towards repeat audiences. And therefore, they are favoring the podcasts that are playing that game, not the ones that are hustling people through the door and losing them through the back door, which is happening with so many of these 2019 strategy podcasts. Which brings us to Spotify, Apple, and now Clubhouse. Where does that fit in? I want to put it to you this. Here's my hypothesis that Clubhouse isn't the new podcasting. Clubhouse is the new radio. What do I mean? Well, as a kid, I was an obsessive radio consumer. You know, and I I listen to radio all the time for music because if you grew up in the 80s, as I did, radio was the only way you could discover music. So starting out, I would listen every Sunday religiously, Sunday, I would listen to the four o'clock chart show on Radio One in England, and it would be a countdown. I believe it would start something like the top 30, and it would then count down with Bruno Brooks. And I was excited because they would count down 30 to one every week. And to me, that sort of sense of wonder that you didn't know what was going to be number one. And that was so important. Being number one was a real moniker of what was accepted back then, because that would shape all playground and classroom conversations at school on Monday morning. And therefore it became social currency, meaning that it meant se- made sense for me to invest in listening to an hour program or however long it was, a couple of hours on Sunday, ear glued literally to the radio and waiting and with anticipation for the DJ to tell me what was number one that week. And obviously I really felt a sense of, um, you know, success if my music was doing well in the charts and disappointment if the crap artists were getting into number one, you know, I would leave feeling like my team had lost if some crappy artist was number one and my guys were number two. You know, that was what radio did for music back then. And I would actually record, I would record the chart shows on tape, on the old uh, 60 minute tapes and listen back to them the next day and the whole week and I'd keep collections of them. And that would then become my airplay, my rotation. So you think about that as a great promotion and discovery tool. You know, later on when I moved, graduated away from pop music and the sort of, you know, the new romantics of the eighties and sort of into the mid eighties, late eighties, when I would start listening to more sort of edgier stuff as I got into my mid to late teens, I would then 
trade the chart show, which was becoming less important in my life, to evening. And I would listen to John Peel, who sadly passed away not so long ago, a few years back, where it seems not so long ago. But he then became the staple of my listening. Again, he would have a show, which I don't know how long John Peel's show was in the evening, like a couple of hours, three hours maybe. And he would have sessions where indie bands would come in and play, um, you know, unplugged a lot of the time. And that was great. You just, I discovered everything through John Peel. And certainly if you knew John Peel, you would know the Smiths because he played the Smiths every single day that he was on the radio. That was his favorite band, I think. And I think in, in many ways, the Smiths were made the Smiths because of John Peel. They, they would have never got discovered. They would have never got mainstream acceptance because the Smiths, by virtue of their looks and their music, were anti-mainstream. So they had John Peel to thank. And I still listen to the Smiths today on Spotify. Thanks to what I was listening to more than 30 years ago on radio. That stuck with me. Now think about that. That if you had those two industries, radio and music, they were very much symbiotic because the relationships between the two were key to both of their success. Radio couldn't survive without quality music and obviously change because I wouldn't listen to the chart show if nothing new was coming out, right? And I wouldn't listen to the chart show if the music industry was distributing through another channel. That's where I got all my information. And in the same way, the music industry needed radio and a lot of that was famously exposed over the years, how the music industry would have their man on Radio 1 or KYC, like Radio 94.3, whatever it is in your town. They would have their guy who would be in the pocket of the record label, right? And that was a, a very, you know, back-scratching type relationship that lasted many years, but it was a, a profitable relationship. So when you think about those two industries, we see that manifesting again in the world of digital audio. And when I talk about digital audio, what I'm talking about is Clubhouse and podcasts. What do I mean? Well, podcasts are many ways like music. They're assets, they're audio assets. This podcast, episode 11 of Podcast Maps you're listening to now, will be available for 10 years, 20 years maybe. And if you were to go to, for example, a curated collection I have of Brand Originals podcast, brandoriginalspodcast.com, you would see in there campaigns effectively, mini series that brands have created from years ago. And you may ask, well, they've stopped. Why? Well, think about it. In the marketing world, Every campaign stops and disappears. So those amazing campaigns that crossed your social media feed once, or sometimes on YouTube, they've disappeared. They've got away. Once they're done, they're done. Yet here we have an asset that lasts forever. 
And you can go and listen to podcasts that are 10 years old. They exist today, going way back. If you listen to Leo Laporte, Twit, for example, This Week in Tech, you know, that's nearly, what, 15 years old, believe it or not. Think about that, that you can create a conversation and that conversation can be talking to people for another 15 years. Now, you don't have to be having that conversation, but it's there, available. If somebody finds it, they can tune in. And it, you know, it doesn't necessarily age. It's a conversation that they can consume for years and years afterwards. Think about the return on that investment. So it's an asset. It's a conversation asset, which is out there. Unlike a marketing campaign, which disappears, it's vapor. So in the same way, uh, you think about music, for example, you know, go into your Spotify, you know, playlist. These are assets, right? These are assets that have been created many, many years ago. I, you know, if I was to start in my playlist on rotation, uh, you know, I'm just thinking about one I was listening to this morning. I've got Aha in there, the Beatles, you know, think about it. I've got the Beatles. I've got like, I don't know, like, 20 tracks, 30 tracks of the Beatles in there. And that just think of when those are recorded, right? Those tracks recorded by the Beatles were recorded nearer chronologically to World War I than today. And yet I'm here in 2021 consuming them. They're an asset. They're out there on airplay, on rotation for 60 years almost. Think about that. In the same way, if you create audio conversations, they can last. The return on them is phenomenal. Long tail content that can be discovered by anybody in the future. It's an asset in the same way music is an asset. You can reclaim it, revitalize it repackage it. It's still there. You know, if you look at the songs that are in my playlist, songs like, um, I've got to say probably the best Beatles song ever, A Day in Life. You know, that's recorded 55 years ago. It's still amazing. So think about now music podcasts as the assets just like all media, you have books, for example. You can buy it. Once you write a book, it's there forever. It doesn't go away. I can order books. If I stare at my bookshelf, I got books by Eric Reese. I got books by Tim Ferriss. I got books by Stephen Covey, who's passed away. You know, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How long ago was that written? 30 years ago? It was written in the 20th century, but it still is effective today. These are assets, conversation assets. So where does Clubhouse come in? A lot of people are talking about Clubhouse as the end of podcasting. And I'm going to put it to you this, it's absolutely the other way around. You know, Elon Musk is a great poster boy for Clubhouse. And when you see Elon pimping Clubhouse, you get excited. You know, I love Elon Musk. I think he's a fun character sometimes a bit sort of cartoon-like, you know, but you see his appearance on the Joe Rogan podcast. You kind of dig him a little bit. You're kind of a bit more forgiving about him. He's edgy. 
He's like, uh, he's authentic. He's himself. And love him or hate him, he's well-known and popular and has the ability to bring a lot of attention, eyeballs to anything that he wants to sell, i.e. Clubhouse, as an example. However, you know, this is the guy who through, I think through the Boring Company, his civil engineering company, he sold $50 million worth of flamethrowers. Now, I'll put it to you as this. Does that validate the model for flamethrowers? Hmm. I don't know if it does. I don't know if somebody could then replicate that and sell flamethrowers, right? It just basically validates Elon Musk's ability to sell anything. It doesn't validate the anything he's actually selling. So when we think about Clubhouse, we have to think it in that context is that we there is a lot of hype generated around it. So we have to kind of step back a little bit, separate the hype from the reality and look at actually what it is. And this is what I want to do now. Let's have a look at some of the stats first. What is driving the hype? So Clubhouse is nearly a year old now. It started with 1,500 beta testers in April 2020. And even by May, it was still only at 3,000. It was growing slowly. But by December that year, it had increased 400 times. It had increased to 600,000 users, still invite only. Obviously, the focus was on a lot of celebrities and elites, people like Elon, for example. And so think about that curve. It really was kicking in about December, whereas around 600,000, it crossed 2 million in January. And only very recently, it's crossed 10 million in February. I don't know where it is now. You know, you can assume it's north of 10 million, you know, maybe 50 million, who knows? That's the data on Clubhouse. It's grown from 1,500 users to, well, potentially a million times that in, sorry, not a million times, a th what is that? 15 million. So yeah, 10,000 times that. So let's say 15 million. It's grown, it's grown 10,000 times in one year, if not more, 20,000 times. It's hard not to get excited by Clubhouse and then take that excitement and project it into the future. Well, if it's grown 20,000 times, it's going to grow another 20,000 times. You know, that's 400 million times in, you know, two years. That's the kind of hockey stick that we expect of these tech platforms that are promoted by people like Elon Musk. Yet again, it's the flamethrower effect, right? You know, it doesn't necessarily stand as a validation that the actual platform without the hype will stand on its own two legs. And I believe that it won't if it doesn't find its behavioral niche in the world of audio. You know, if Clubhouse tries to compete with radio, then it's good. But if Clubhouse tries to compete with music, it ain't good. Let me explain. Clubhouse is a distribution channel. Podcasts are assets. So it makes complete sense that 
a podcaster uses Clubhouse as a distribution tool, as opposed to the actual asset itself, because yeah, you can set up a room on Clubhouse and monetize it, but what is your asset? How can you be discovered 10 years from now? How can you make money while you sleep on that asset? That's passive income. That's by definition what an asset should be doing. An asset doesn't necessarily have to appreciate in value to be valuable. An asset just has to produce an income, right? So in the same way, the asset needs to be working for you whilst you're not working on it. And Clubhouse can't do that at the moment, but what it can do is it can get a lot of attention, which is valuable, right? And you can use that and convert Clubhouse attention into podcast listeners. Well, obviously that is one way of applying it. And the second way maybe is interacting with existing audiences. And the third way is hustling Clubhouse for guests, which is happening all over the place at the moment. What I would suggest is that possibly the best use of Clubhouse is a way for podcasters with tight niche audiences to monetize their audience and create or effectively like a membership community. And that is a way to keep the conversation going because there aren't many options for podcasters to monetize their content if their model relies on external advertising or revenue streams to, you know, validate the business model. Meaning that this is important to understand the difference between B2C and B2B podcast. If you're a B2B podcaster, effectively you are the advertiser on your own podcast, right? You know, we work for McKinsey as an example on their podcast and they don't then create a podcast to sell that real estate to an advertiser because they are the advertiser. It is a very soft advert for McKinsey. It's about them, their people, what they believe in and how they think, right? Which is a fantastic way to engage with their people. And it's a fantastic way for them to humanize their brand and make it more authentic and reachable. But they don't want to advertise on that with external ads. It doesn't make sense. It's not the business model for them. Yet there are a lot of ads seeking. Um, there's a lot of ad seeking podcasts out there. You know, podcasters who want to try inserts, podcasters who want to try dynamic content inside their ads. To be honest, all of that sucks. Dynamic inserts in podcasts, I think, are going to just annoy people. I, I see that as a market that probably will grow, but it will. I mean, you've all listened to Tim Ferriss, right? And as much as we all like Tim Ferriss, pretty much everybody hates those dynamic insert ads, which are the read throughs. So Tim says, you know, I'm today I'm drinking this organic grass fed coffee, you know, that kind of stuff. It sucks, right? We know it's kind of almost like Tim has to prostitute himself to kind of pay the bills on this podcast. That's fine, but it doesn't help him. And for a brand, absolutely don't need to do this. Create a brand originals by, you know, as an alternative to this. 
and look at that website, brandoriginalspodcast.com. It doesn't have advertising in it. It is advertising. It's a much better form of advertising. It's agile. It doesn't need an external revenue source, but it's a much better and cost-effective way of engaging customers, especially young customers, than creating an ad campaign that's going to disappear. So really today, I wanted to talk about Clubhouse and podcasting. And the, the real message that I want people to take away is to think about the analogy carefully, which is that podcasting is music and Clubhouse is radio. And these two are going to work together and they're going to find that sort of dance that radio and music did, you know, performed and evolved over 50, 60 years. It's early days and it may not be Clubhouse that is radio. It may just be one radio station, but that's the role that it has to play in this new age of audio so coming up, episode 12, I'm going to talk about the new age of audio. What exactly is that? And that is that everything new is old and everything old is new. How we are importing many of the best practices from the world of radio into digital audio today. And what that means is if you, you read the signs, if you understand what radio meant to people and how it connected people, that digital hearth that we're creating in the same way that people would gather around radio in the old days. You know, they used to call it theater of the mind. That's coming back, guys. And I want to talk about that trend. So that's episode 12 of Podcast Maps, the new age of audio. If you want to check out Podcast Maps, go to podcastmaps.com. There's the app there, plus the podcast. Just click on the podcast and you'll find all the latest episodes. My name is Graham Brown. I'll see you on episode 12. 